Wild Bobcast appeared. Okay, that's enough of that. Yep. Okay. Bobcast. 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 This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Hey there, Bob Squad. It's uh, it's been a while. In case you forgot, you are listening to Bobcast since I saw you. <laughs> so I am Caleb Castro, and I am Andrew Smith. Or at least that's what we've been told. I mean, how can we really know for sure? We'll have to get your mother on here. Maybe. Bob, mom. What about your mother? Uh, what about my mother? What about your father, Fidel Castro? <laughs> uh, so if we haven't ever actually said it before, so again, my name is Caleb Castro, and my dad's name actually is Fidel Castro. So now you know, my dad is uh, Fidel. And that's why Caleb is a raging communist. It's true. I love uh, the color red. Uh, I love long walks on the beach, and I love you know equal distribution of wealth. And cars made in the 50s. That too. And also, I'm not Cuban, just for the record. Yeah. But. So. So, anyways. Yeah. So, we had some stuff and some things. We were actually planning on recording a few weeks ago, and I went on a end of summer vacation to Michigan, and right as we got there, uh, <laughs> we had a multi-day power outage that just so happened to cover any window of time we had to record. Uh, so that was fun. Let's, let's stop you right there. Who goes on vacation to Michigan? Well, <laughs> so for one thing, reformed people, um, because I mean, Grand Rapids and all that, which I did actually go there. I went to the Puritan Seminaries Conference there in Grand Rapids, uh, spent some time with our former co-host, Mark Scaturro. He's doing well. He's interning for a church there in Grand Rapids. And also, my wife uh, has family in Michigan, so we were seeing them, staying with them. But now I'm back in Alaska. I'm sorry. No, I mean, it's nice after the 90-degree the weather and the 90% humidity, humidity to, <laughs> to be back up here where it's a little more mild. Really, though, um, a lot of people where, where I'm at in uh, south of Chicago go on vacation in Michigan, Silver Lake and uh, Sleeping Bear, all that kind of stuff. So, so I say it in jest. Oh. Yeah, and, and uh, so while Andrew was vacationing in Michigan, uh, I too was supposed to be in Grand Rapids at that same time for the Puritan Reform Conference, but I had just finished my uh, internship, my final internship in California, and I was driving 33 plus hours back to Illinois and ended up not being able to uh, attend. <laughs> Pretty much, I think, like, we got back, goodness, probably about the same time the second day of sessions were finishing. So I did get to listen, though, to some, and I'm still working through some of it. So now uh, I'm back in the swing of things here in uh, South Chicago. My final year at uh, Mid-America Reform Seminary has started. I'm already doing pulpit supply. Uh, just came back from Wisconsin last night, and uh, now we're here. So, Andrew, this is our Labor Day special. 
Is it? No, not really. It just happens to be the day that we're recording. This is actually our third day in a row of trying to record uh, thanks to my failures in life. But uh, yeah, let the record show that it was never our plan to record on Labor exactly. Day. And by third day in a row, I don't mean uh, including the Lord's Day. Uh, Friday, Saturday, we tried and I totally failed. <laughs> but yeah. here we are. And uh, for this special Labor Day special, we have... Special, special. We have a special next part of our special series on the special covenant of special grace uh, revealed by special revelation. To translate that without all the specialness, we're looking at the covenant of grace. We've been doing this series through covenant theology. We've been through some introductory matter and the covenant of redemption and the covenant of works. And now we are on to the covenant of grace. Yay, grace. Which is going to probably take longer than all of the others, perhaps even combined. <laughs> probably, but, you know, such is life. And not without good reason. I mean, the covenant of grace is the reality and essence of historical Christianity. It is redemption in history um, and the outworking of God's plan. It also encapsulates most of Scripture because you realize where we're at so far. I mean, we have the covenant of redemption, which was made in eternity before and outside of creation. And then we have the covenant of works, which really only gets us through the first couple of chapters of Genesis. And so basically, most of the rest is dealing with the covenant of grace. Yeah, this is why Reformed people will often talk about this history of redemption, you know, salvation history. Salvation history is covenant history. Covenant theology is salvation theology. It is Christian theology. Right. This is what the Bible teaches. You know, I think we can say at least in general, rather than where there's greater debate and disagreement over the validity of the covenant of works and the covenant of redemption in eternity, the covenant of grace is at least in general, the point in which all reformed denominations agree with. We have our variations. Yeah, there are going to be some differences as to certain nuances and interpretations of certain parts of the covenant of grace, and we'll get to some of those. Uh, but at the end of the day, I mean, the covenant of grace, yeah, it is the a unifying aspect of all Reformed theology, Reformed churches, Reformed theologians, and so forth. And, you know, I think we could also say that there's a unifying principle then that goes along with it, uh, as we've already mentioned throughout the entirety of the story of Scripture. But it also is what really helps bring to light and unity the covenant made in the garden, the covenant of works, and as well as its basis of the covenant of redemption in eternity. So the covenant of grace is something of a logical outworking of those uh, ideas, those concepts. So beginning our look at the covenant of grace here, we ought to first tie it into what we've looked at before. Particularly, what does the covenant of grace have to do with the covenant of works? Now, we've been laying out this idea of covenants. For instance, as the Westminster Confession puts it, the covenant is necessarily a relationship of covenants between God and man, their relationship of voluntary divine condescension. So in both the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, God condescends, God voluntarily enters into this relationship, this agreement with man. So in that sense, they're both covenants. So there is a quote from 
Bob Inc. in his Reform Dogmatics, Volume 2, page 570 in the English edition, that helps to explain the relationship between the covenant of grace and the covenant of works. He says, True religion, accordingly, cannot be anything other than a covenant. It has its origin in the condescending goodness and grace of God. It has that character before as well as after the fall. For religion, like the moral law and the destiny of man, is one. The covenant of works and the covenant of grace do not differ in their final goal. So that final goal, of course, being eternal glorification, eternal life. They do not differ in their final goal, but only in the way that leads to it. In both there is one mediator then, so the covenant of works, a mediator of union, now, so in covenant of grace, a mediator of reconciliation. In both there is one faith, then faith in God, so Adam had to believe God's word and obey it, now faith in God through Christ, and in both covenants there is one hope, one love, and so forth. Religion is always the same in essence. It differs only in form. So what you're seeing is that Bavink, in line with uh, classical Reformed covenant theology, or just classical Reformed theology, is placing the primary, the starting place for covenant, he's reminding us, is always God and God's sovereignty. Mm -hmm. It's not the contract with man. It's not man's relationship to God. It's who God is and how God deals with creature, particularly those whom he has willed in the eternal decree, the divine decree before the foundations of the earth to be his in election. Bobby here is then saying the primary focus here is God the Father deals with his people through Jesus Christ, his son. That's what this notion of mediator is. So there has always been and always will be one mediator between God and man, and that is God the Son. The focus here then is uh, some people will say Jesus Christ is the head of the covenant. More accurately, it's that Jesus Christ is the mediator of the covenant in every single respect. God deals with the Son by giving a people over to him, and the Son purchases the people through his work on the cross and reconciles them to God the Father, and the Father and the Son send the Spirit to then indwell in man and unify him, uh, reconcile him, regenerate him in the image of Christ. So this is where now Bavink is saying that in the original created order before the fall, man was in that state of innocence and Jesus Christ acted as a mediator of unifying God and man. So he was the center of the relationship. After the fall, now man is no longer innocent, and so Jesus Christ steps in as the mediator of reconciliation, and he, he is the guarantee, the surety of what is promised, that God will reconcile man. And this brings us to the first promise of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3. Right, because there is a debate as to where the covenant of grace begins. Some would say... We don't really get the covenant of grace until some even go as far as to say Abraham. Mm -hmm. But I would argue, and I think the majority opinion of Reformed theology is that the covenant of grace comes into play immediately upon the violation, the, the end, the termination of the covenant of works. And that is in Genesis 3.15. 
So in Genesis chapter 3, there's obviously the fall. There's sin, which makes man's attainment of life under the covenant of works impossible. So in Genesis 3, 14 and following, God pronounces certain things, certain mostly curses to the man and woman and to the serpent. So let me go ahead and read that. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then look at this in 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, there's not a lot here as far as content, but what we're seeing here is, this passage is often referred to as the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, because we are seeing a promise of something that is to come. Enmity between the serpent, you know, representing Satan, and your offspring, so Satan and his works and those in the world, and the offspring of woman, and then this, he shall bruise your head. So the offspring of the woman is going to deal a fatal blow to the serpent, and then you shall bruise his heel, whereas the serpent is resisting and fighting against this seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is the promised Christ. And so you see here already in Genesis 3, immediately after the fall, the introduction of the covenant of grace is not fully fleshed out, but the substance of it is present. With that nature of enmity, that that statement of enmity between the seed of the woman and the serpent, you have this announcement of something of a foreshadowing of also the antithesis then, which we'll get to shortly. But you'll see this in the working out of a constant struggle between the people of God and those who follow after the serpent, the children of the devil, which, which finds its proper beginning in Cain and Abel. In thinking on this transition from this covenant of works to covenant of grace, you know, I think it's helpful to remember, first of all, the, the, the place of the law in this way, because this is going to come up in further discussion later, in that the law, we remember, is something that, first of all, has its origin in God himself as the lawgiver. Its origin is God's holiness. In that way, then, this is where we call it the moral law. All true morality in goodness comes from above. So that is our starting place. That is inscribed upon the heart of man with the image of God. God puts the image of God in his creation, in his creature, man. He writes the law on the heart, and then he enters into a covenant with him by the word, by, by telling him what his uh, obligations are and what he's to do. These were those things that we spoke of back in the covenant of works. Right. We went to quite some length back then, so if you haven't listened to that, you can go listen to that, to describe how the law and the covenant, while related, they're not one and the same thing. The law precedes and transcends covenant. And this is important as we consider what's happening in the fall and the movement from covenant of works to covenant of grace, because there no longer remains a way to life by the covenant of works. There no longer remains man being able to achieve life under it. All that remains of the covenant of works is the condemnation 
that is brought for the transgression of it. This sin of Adam that is imputed to all his descendants and that is worked out in all of us also being fallen and sinful. And, you know, and there's two effects that come with the fall. And I, I think this is uh, very helpful to point out. We talk about the discontinuity, what was different, what was lost with the fall. But what about the continuity? And here's where we have to be careful, where uh, some people say that there's absolutely no discontinuity. This is pretty prominent in the Federal Vision movement, uh, Norman Shepard. These are who we call monocovenantalists. It's the exact same covenant, the exact same way of dealing with man pre-fall and post-fall. Proper continuity, though, recognizes two aspects that carry on from before the fall and after the fall by nature of who God is and how he has designed man. I had mentioned the uh, image of God. I mentioned the writing of the law on the heart, and I mentioned the giving of the word, God revealing himself and the obligations to Adam to uh, work and keep the garden and uh, be fruitful and multiply over the earth. Adam had a role to play as prophet, priest, and king in the garden. Now, those are two aspects then. God is in relationship with man as creator and as revealing himself in writing the law on the heart. So this means that there is a natural unity. So man is in a natural relationship with God by virtue of him as creator. But he is also then in a relationship with him federally. He has also this forensic legal relationship with him. It's not merely one or the other. Some will emphasize that the relationship is forensic. It's uh, judicial. It's all about a legal contract. Or, or they'll simply even collapse that into the natural unity. But we want to remember there's also a moral ethical relationship, obligations that come with it. This is a natural relationship. Uh, listen to what Gerardus Voss says here. Federal and natural unity were placed side by side in the covenant of works without subordinating the one to the other. With respect to the covenant of grace, the distinctively Lutheran view comes out in the fact that nothing but faith was recognized as the condition of the covenant, covenant of grace, or what is called the stipulatio foederis. Reformed theologians also add to this without hesitation that in the covenant of grace there is new obedience and say that justification is by faith alone, but that the covenant is much broader. The Lutheran brings the sole fide from justification to the idea of the covenant when he takes up the latter. Here we already see a twofold righteousness that is in the covenant of works, a twofold righteousness of hearing the word and obeying the word. And this is what carries on in the covenant of grace in a different respect, in a different administration. Voss continues, the law has remained as it existed apart from the covenant of works. It has been done away with as a covenant rule. But good works in the first covenant were not strictly meritorious, but were richly rewarded with free favor. So one can easily see how the main features have already been drawn at this point when we're understanding the development of the covenant of works and grace. So in foreshadowing some of our discussion, Voss is saying that there remains, by virtue of this federal and natural unity, after the fall in the covenant of grace, the obligation of both faith and a requirement of morality, a requirement of new obedience or what we might say works in a manner, just that those works are not saving works. 
Right. This is consistent with what the Westminster Confession argues in chapter 19, sections 5 through 7. I'll just read some portions of that quickly. Uh, So 19.5, the moral law doth forever bind all as well justified persons as others to the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard to the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Neither doth Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. And then 6. Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others in that as a rule of life informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their nature, hearts, and lives, so as examining themselves thereby, They may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin, together with a clear sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. So you kind of get there your first use of the law. And then it is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions in that it forbids sin, and the threatenings of it serve to shew, so show, old word there, what even their (laughs) sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse thereof threatened in the law. The promises of it in like manner shew, again, them God's (laughs) approbation of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof, although not due to them by the law as a covenant of works. So as a man's doing good and refraining from evil, because the law encourageth to the one and deterreth from the other, is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. And then finally, section 7. Neither are the forementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requireth to be done. Shoe. Shoe. So as the Westminster Confession uh, shoes us, there is a place for the law in the believer. And again, we're, we're somewhat anticipating the direction of this conversation. Right here in what we're discussing of the first promise of the gospel, the Proto-Evangelion in Genesis 3.15, we need to understand that there is still the requirement to fulfill the law on man. Man must fulfill the law. Man must obey the law. But the problem is he cannot. Nonetheless, there is a responsibility for man to obey God's ways, and this includes a responsibility to believe. Belief is a demand. Belief in the gospel, in this promise that's presented towards man already at this point, is an obligation and requirement. Just as before the fall, the natural relationship between God and man obliged Adam to love and obey him as his creator, and with the word in the covenant of works given and its stipulations, Adam was required to love and obey through his service. So in these respects, those things haven't changed now with this introduction of the promise of the covenant of grace. What has changed is simply that man cannot in any way 
do this himself. Man will not obey unless it is God who works this reconciliation in him first through someone who will obey, Jesus Christ. And after reconciliation, man would then show his gratitude by wholehearted obedience by the spirit of Christ who works in him. And not only can man not obey, he cannot even believe mm-hmm. apart from the regenerating work of God. I like this quote from Voss in a different place in this uh, same essay I'm referencing. We'll give the reference later. Nothing can occur in man's life where God's law does not immediately apply and is not impressed strongly on his conscience. As soon as the gospel enters into the consciousness of man, he is confronted with the demand of faith. There is not a single sinner who for one moment can withdraw himself from the responsibility toward the gospel to which he is bound by his conscience. Just as man before the fall was obligated to enter into the covenant of works, even so fallen man is obligated to receive grace with a believing heart. The difference remains that while acceptance was a matter of course in the state of rectitude, it cannot take place in the fallen state except for supernatural grace. So on this introduction of the covenant of grace uh, we have another quote here from bavink this is reform dogmatics volume 3 page 199 he says this revelation of god's grace is even more pronounced in the interrogation and words of punishment that follow so before the curse but as well as the proto-evangelion when god comes and and asks adam and eve what they were doing and where they've been This is continuing Bob Inc.'s quote. The Lord specifically calls Adam, for he is the head and responsible party. Note that Eve was the first one who actually transgressed the covenant, the first one to take and eat the fruit. But but Adam is responsible. Adam is the covenant head. He's the one whom this covenant was entered into with. The Lord does not immediately pronounce his verdict, but makes an inquiry interrogating the people and giving them every opportunity to defend themselves when they take advantage of that opportunity and, though not denying all blame, do not fall humbly and penitently before God's feet, but instead try to excuse themselves. God does not erupt in anger, but to a degree honors their apology. And then, although starting the interrogation with Adam and pronouncing the verdict, he first turns to the serpent, then to Eve, and subsequently to Adam. And in that verdict, mercy triumphs over judgment. The punishment, Genesis 3:14 and 15, first of all concerns the serpent as an ordinary animal. God humbles the serpent, putting enmity between it and humanity. Henceforth, in place of the earlier subordination of animals to human beings, there will be conflict between the two. So this is why there's violence between animals and people. This is why up here in Alaska, if you go out in the woods, you could get gored by a moose or eaten by a bear. That's part of the curse. That's part of the fall. Or here in Illinois, you can step outside and be drained by a horde of mosquitoes. Right. So Bavin continues, a conflict in which human beings will have the upper hand, but still have to suffer much from the animals, especially from the serpent. This punishment further passes through the serpent to the evil power whose instrument it was. So the devil, Satan. With this power, humanity had made a covenant and for its sake broken the covenant with God. God graciously annuls it, puts enmity between the seed of the serpent and the woman's seed, 
brings the seed of the woman, humanity, that is, back to his side, hence declaring that from Eve will spring a human race and that that race, though it will have to suffer much in the conflict with that evil power, will eventually triumph. From this point on, the road for the human race will pass through suffering to glory, through struggle to victory, through the cross to a crown, through the state of humiliation to that of exaltation. This is the fundamental law that God here proclaims before the entrance into the kingdom of heaven. So there's a lot there. This is a very rich quote from Bavink, but we see, again, what he sort of laid out before that the goal is still the same. The goal is eternal life, eternal glorification, but the way has changed. The way has become much more difficult as it pertains to man. In fact, impossible for man on his own initiative. There is now this requirement for mediation. There is this requirement for another to fulfill what man is lacking, what man is unable to do in this covenant. So here we have God's glory in his grace on such a wonderful display that even though Adam and Eve disobeyed God and deserve punishment in eternal condemnation immediately, they should have been blotted out of the earth along with the serpent. God nonetheless has a greater plan and purpose for their fall. The fall does not surprise God. There is no plan B. This was already ordained and accounted for in eternity itself, in that Jesus Christ would be glorified, and thereby God would be glorified. So these two sinners, now being expelled from the garden, are made the first members of the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace begins with, if you will, this, this little first church, man and his wife. And we're going to see this covenant of grace expand larger and larger. First man and wife, then of the family and of clan with uh, their children and with Seth and his children, his offspring. We see it expand to Noah and his family, his offspring. We see it expand to an entire tribe of Abraham and all of his relatives and those in his entire household. You go into the expansion to an entire nation, entire people groups. And this then goes outward to the entirety of the world from there. All here from the beginning Adam's commission to be fruitful and multiply and spread and subdue the earth is nonetheless fulfilled through God's outworking of the covenant plan. Eventually, the gospel will go to the ends of the earth and God's people will be from all tribes, tongues, and nations. So we get ahead of ourselves with that in there, but let's consider now how Bovink will put this in a following section from what Andrew just read. So we see this on the next page from Bob Inc. So this is volume three, page 200 of Reform Dogmatics. Leaning on God's promise, Adam calls his wife Eve. Life, source of life, mother of the living. Before the fall, he saw her primarily as the wife who had been given him as helper. And so he called her woman, Isha in the Hebrew. But now he views her primarily as mother and calls her Eve. Though they have deserved death and decay, God's blessing makes the woman fruitful and causes her to bring forth the humanity that in her greatest son, the son of man, will conquer the evil power of sin. In the divine promise, Adam reads the guarantee of the propagation 
the existence, the development, and salvation of the human race, and accepts it as such in genuinely childlike faith. And this faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. In principle, Genesis 3 contains the entire history of humankind, all the ways of God for the salvation of the lost and the victory over sin. In substance, the whole gospel, the entire covenant of grace, is present here. All that follows is the development of what has been germinally, or like a seed, planted here. So there's, uh, in Bobbing's words, what I had communicated a moment ago, that you have this glorious promise of grace and its outworking, and all of it intended in Jesus Christ. Well, that's all the time that we have here for this episode of Bovcast. We're going to be continuing with the topic of Covenant of Grace and going into the Noahic Covenant in our next part. We hope that for now that you learned something uh, that it was edifying and useful to you. And that, uh, as always, if you have any questions, comments, critiques, or uh, just want to say hi, how are you? We'd appreciate it. Hi. Hi. So... Go ahead and shoo us your thoughts uh, and communicate to us. And until next time, tote zines. Tote zines. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.